You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. We have pioneered a new and uniquely Chinese path to modernization and created a new model for human advancement. That's China's president, Xi Jinping, being translated live as he spoke at Tiananmen Square yesterday to mark the 100 years of the Chinese Communist Party. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray from the Business Desk here at the South China Morning Post. And today we're reaching out to Tokyo, Brussels, as well as our colleagues here in Hong Kong for analysis on the news from China that's dominated headlines this week, and one or two things that may have slipped under the radar. It's been a week of parades, populism and propaganda across every channel of communication this week. And one wonders what Vladimir Lenin would make of the Chinese version of the one-party socialist state he founded in 1917. You'll be hearing from two of our editors about the main event in Beijing this week. Our regular guest, Zhou Xin, is here in Hong Kong. But we'll also be hearing from China Desk editor, Peter Langen, who's based in Tokyo. He'll be talking about China's neighboring nations and how their relationship with the CCP is changing. And in the second half of the program, we'll be hearing from our man in Brussels, Finbar Birmingham. Now that Biden's circus has left town, has the enthusiasm for a united front against China fractured? Or indeed, has the Hong Kong government and its effective closure of the Apple Daily newspaper resulted in new sanctions from the European Parliament? Let's get started. Joshin, we usually don't talk about fashion on this podcast. Well, maybe never, occasionally what Finbar is wearing. But I want to talk a little bit about Xi Jinping's uh, outfit um, during yesterday's speech. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Chad. Yes, that's uh, very interesting because it's a gray Mars suit. You know, for these kind of suits, it's now increasingly wear at the very uh, big uh, ceremonies. But also, uh, it's a tradition that, you know, among all these people standing on the uh, Tiananmen pavilion, it's only the man in the middle who wears it. That's when exactly when I was among the, um, the, you know, the demonstration team celebrating the 50th anniversary of the People's Republic. You know, when you're walking through the, the Round Avenue and you look high up in the pavilion, you, you can't recognize their faces because it's, uh, it's very far, far away. But you can still judge from the outfit, you know, okay, the man in the middle, the most important person is wearing the morsuit, while everyone else is wearing a jacket, you know, with a tie. So it's quite interesting. And this gray mile jacket has kind of certain implications. I think today it's more representing a, a tradition and also a, a sense of authority. And so this, you don't see lots of people wearing on the Beijing or Shanghai streets. But when somebody wearing this uh, uh, jacket, wearing this boss suit, you have to take immediately like, oh, this person must be very, very important. He dropped the cap, though. That, that is the one thing that a lot of people, particularly in the West, associate with, with Mao and the Mao suit. But he didn't wear the cap. And I'm not sure I've ever seen uh, Xi Jinping wear the cap when he wears his Mao suit. Uh, well, I don't think in these days people would do that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's more of kind of fantasy of the U.S. general audience about like, oh, this is being the cultural revolution uh, fit so that everyone has to put the, put the cap on the uh, top of their head. But that's not the case anymore. Yeah, the, hats are generally out, out of uh, fashion in, in many places in the U.S. as well as in China. Yeah, it's still uh, deeply in fashion in U.K., I heard. Uh, true, true. So, uh, Joshin, I, I wanted to look at how the media around the world was reporting the speech. You know, there was, it was one phrase in particular that Xi Jinping used that a lot of the Western media was focused on. They, they were saying, quote, 
about heads bashed and bloodied against a great wall of steel, end quote. But we have a listen to the original audio that was recorded from the live feed from Chinese TV. We will never allow any foreign force to bully, oppress, or subjugate us. Anyone who would attempt to do so will find themselves on a collision course with a great wall of steel forged by over 1.4 billion Chinese people. I'm seeing a bit of discussion here in Hong Kong on Twitter that there might have been something lost in translation here. Well, Chad, thanks for bringing me this subject to me because I really, really want to discuss this. Because as an experienced translator, I always like, uh, you know, fascinated by this use of these uh, Chinese phrases in different contexts. For this one to start with, yes, all these translations saying you know that as a head cracked and uh, bloodshed, yes, it's a literal translation. If from the Chinese is topo xueliu, there is a heading yet, there is a bloody bloody yet. So uh, you kind of call it a wrong translation for most of the uh, Western media. And also, you know, if you if you have blood or head in the headline or in the lead, it certainly uh, uh, make make the article more readable, more dramatic. So we cannot blame uh, any uh, news organization by literally translate this phrase as you know uh, Xi Jinping wants to uh, smash some head and get some blood spilled. However, I think if in this context. Uh, this phrase has uh, has a has a kind of implication. Not literally. Usually, it means is a total failure. Okay, it's uh, it's like if you want to uh, uh, you know attack us, uh, this will be a total failure. So it's not as the real meaning is not as uh, dramatic as the wording on the surface. Of course, I, re- I looked into the dictionary <laughs> of, uh, to look, look back into the uh, history of this uh, phrase. This is firstly appeared in the, uh, one of Chinese classic novels, The Journey to the West. And, you know, when, when, when the author Wu Chen'en used it, yes, it used literally, it means the monkey king uh, attacked the toyist and uh, several toyists would get hurt and their head cracked and then uh, blood was uh, spilled on their, on their faces. However, increasingly in the modern day Chinese literature, I think this word is increasingly, this phrase is increasingly to describe a, a, a miserable failure. Okay, say if the uh, if the if the foreign enemy is trying to invade our, uh, us, it will get the result of uh, uh, to describing this phrase. It means a total failure. Yeah. Well, I, I, in following up on that, you know, one thing I, I found interesting is, is, you know, whether it be in the U.S. or it be in China. You do see a lot of uh, rhetoric that's built around sort of patriotism and nationalism when it comes to anniversaries like this. You know, the, the U.S. is, you know, over the weekend going to celebrate its, uh, you know, latest birthday. But uh, I'm, I'm curious in this particular usage here, and a lot of the media has focused on this, is, is this, you know, a direct rebuke to the United States and what the U.S. allies have been sort of doing? They're talking about everything from Taiwan to Hong Kong to uh, – Xinjiang. So I, I really wanted to you know, get your sense about how is this different from what we normally would see in a speech like this? Okay. Yes. Now, now I want to get this point. The choice of this phrase, yes, it's a very uh, strong, it's very strong wording. It's almost like if I use say, uh, if you are trying to invade us, you will have a fear. It's certainly much more strong uh, than that. That's why you know uh, the, the audience on the Tiananmen Square uh, have uh, have uh, have the loudest uh, applaud uh, for the for this phrase. It shows kind of determination. It shows kind of like it's all out strike. Yes. Yeah, so in, in in that meaning, I think this is not targeting at any 
you know, any country or any, any enemy. But at least the, 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 the message is there. Like, whoever is trying to bully us, occupy us, this is the result I'm going to give it to you. And this is uh, by literary meaning is uh, to smash your head and get some uh, blood spilled, which, which, uh, which implied a, a failure. A total failure, a complete failure. That and, and you know, this is also like you will look ugly and you will look stupid. This, this kind of the uh, contonations. Yeah, and 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 I wanted to continue and just say what 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 have we? You know, a lot of people focused on this yesterday. Yes. But uh, you know, what did we miss in this speech? If 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 we were only paying attention to sort of the Western media or paying attention to that little bit that was on television a lot. Well, that's uh, that's very interesting because you know uh, it's also the the media focus on this phrase it itself reflected this deep like confrontational attitudes existing between China and the rest of the world. If we read through the whole speech, I mean, apart from this this phrase, President Xi also mentioning lots of other things, saying China will be always open, it will not be closed, China will be willing to accept constructive criticism. You know, if you if you have some uh, um, advices or suggestions, Beijing is willing to listen. All these kind of uh, 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 you know phrases are kind of omitted or not played up in in, in the coverage. And then this, there is also remember this is a this is a communist party celebrating its 100th anniversary. Where do we have these kind of usual ideological, uh, traditional, classic uh, uh, communism slogans? Unite, you know, the, the working class, we should, uh, uh, we should overstone the existing world. The only thing we lose is the Qing. <laughs> where, where are these slogans? If Karl Marx was alive today, he would read this, you know, well, this sounds like, uh, you know, you, you still have the hammer and sickle, but it's so, you know, different now from like 1848, have a, have a revolution to overstone the order. It's more of about the Chinese Communist Party, about itself saying, I'm the ruling party, I want to make, my, uh, make the country stronger, make the country greater to achieve its uh, national rejuvenation. And during this process, if anyone trying to stop us, uh, we will not, you know, uh, back off. And also, we kind of accept this as a model as the best for us. So, you know, please do not lecture us like you are uh, superior uh, than us or you know better than us how to manage this vast country. This is a message. So it's actually, to some extent, you can also say this is not as uh, uh, cross any, making any further, you know, uh, provocations or goes any further than uh, Beijing's policies. It's just the state of the obvious. I want to come back to that in a second, Joshin, but, um, you know, anyone who's listened to you on this podcast over the last two years, they, they've heard a lot about the challenges that Beijing policymakers face, you know, whether it's the middle income trap, the birth rate crisis, the uh, ongoing relationship with Europe. And so, uh, you know, did, did he really, you know, zone in on any of those types of issues in this speech? Uh, no. He's not touching on the specific issues, but he's, this speech is for rallying the people to the, you know, we have achieved this uh, building up the uh, comprehensive will of society. This is already something to celebrate. And now we are going to, we are sure to achieve our next milestone. This is by 2049, China will become a powerful socialist country. And this is rallying the whole country, the, the, the people towards that goal. So he's not uh, trying to address like specific issues. So yes, all the challenges are still there. And as always, you know, challenges are always there. Uh, but President Xi is delivering this message to his domestic audience that uh, it doesn't matter you know, how many challenges or, or obstacles are there. As long as you know, this uh, ruling Communist Party is still in power, as long as they stick to their uh, strategies, uh, all these visions or these blueprints can be realized. 
this is, you know, a highly, of course, a highly politicalized statement, like any leader will do. So this is a, this is more of a, of a, of a political uh, statement instead of a, a, a policy paper try, to try to address specific issues. Well, it also seemed that that she was saying that the mantle of communism. You know, has passed into the hands of of China, and their 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 leadership, their style is going to be there. And and I want to talk about one specific thing he said. Um, he said that Marxism works, but I do want to ask this: What do you think Vladimir Lenin uh, would think about socialism with Chinese characteristics? I have no idea. You have to you have to get uh, Lenin from his grave. <laughs> well, I'm sure we could knock on the glass egg, but. Jiuxin, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Always great to speak with you. Thank you, Chad. Our China desk editor, Peter Langham, is in Tokyo and joins us on the line. Before we look at China's relationship with Japan and the two Koreas, can I draw your attention to something that Xi Jinping has uh, referred to in his speech this morning? And it's something that's become something of a mantra for the CCP that has lifted millions of people out of poverty. Is it as simple as that? Well, I think with most things, politics, it's definitely not as simple as that. The view of this, I think, from the other side is that if you look at uh, Deng Xiaoping as being the sort of architect of the opening of, of China after the horrendous mess left by Mao, then you, you have the uh, efforts by China to get into the World Trade Organization, and it was finally admitted in 2001. And from that period on, you have China opening its doors to, you know, massive amounts of foreign inve- investment, uh, not just in terms of tens of billions of dollars of cash, but industrial technology, high tech, uh, managerial know-how, and so forth. And I think that sort of dovetails with this amazing expansion of China's economy, and then the prosperity that that brought to the Chinese people. So you can't look at the lifting of those hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Obviously, uh, a most wonderful and welcome thing in any country without considering that it was done through trade and primarily trade with the United States, you know, providing the juice, if you like, that uh, brought that prosperity to China. I mean, as we know, all political behavior is to claim credit for any kind of... um, beneficial event. But the other side of this story is that it came through trade. And trade with the West was the key element, I think. Peter, it's something that we've seen this growth in China really displacing Japan as being sort of the leading economy in Asia. And so I'd like to talk to you about, you know, the relationship right now between China and Japan. Has it changed since Suga has risen to power and replaced Abe? I think the more fundamental changes to the Japan-China relationship hinge around the appearance, if you like, of China on the international stage and what it's doing in, in Asia. And Japan is certainly unnerved by the expansion into the South China Sea and now, of course, the, um, the issue over Taiwan. The issue around Suga is, you know, he was the protege of uh, Shinzo Abe. And Abe was seen very much as a, as a hawk. Uh, he tried to change Japan's Article 9 of his constitution, um, you know, controlling Japan's military um, posture. So Suga's in that sort of lineage, if you like. But certainly the issue around Taiwan 
and what the saber rattling and what have you certainly has changed the tone in Japan in the last couple of years. And there was actually some comments by Japan's former ambassador to China fairly recently. I mean, he was speaking off the record, but he did say that what China has managed to do is to drive the US and Japan much, much closer together. And I guess, I mean, that's obviously speaking from a security point of view, but I think the economy and the economic ties, again, between the US and Japan will only be strengthened. Japan is always, as you know, at G7 meetings and other things, it's always standing in the background. The PM of the day is always, you know, head below the parapets and just smoothing things over. But definitely the tone is now changing where Japan is coming out and siding much more clearly with the U.S. in stating its concerns about what China's military threat to Taiwan and making it clear that it's not acceptable. So in that sense, there's been a definite a definite shift. And as, as we know, we had this uh, just this week, the deputy defense minister in Japan making that clear again. In fact, really annoying Beijing because he referred to Taiwan as a country, which was, I think, a slip of the tongue. But at the same time, the tone of the conversation coming out of Tokyo now has definitely shifted. Peter, I want to dial down a bit on Taiwan. Uh, you know, we, we've seen China increasing its military presence, not only around Taiwan, but also within the South China Sea. And, you know, given the proximity of Japan and Taiwan, it it's, uh, has a chain of islands that are about 120 kilometers away. You know, how did these threats to Taiwan really affect Japan? And are we going to see a, a greater Japanese military presence around this? As I said, it's certainly changed the tone of the conversation in Tokyo and definitely now as a, a direct threat to Japan itself. I mean, the chain of islands that run down from Okinawa right up to just, you know, within sight of Taiwan itself. Plus, there's a long history with between Japan and Taiwan. I mean, okay, involving the Second World War, but um, the relations between the two governments has always been quite cordial. But it's definitely seen as a you know, clear military threat to Japan itself. And it would change the whole military balance of power if um, China launched any kind of military attempt to take control of Taiwan. You know, Beijing speaks of Taiwan as being a red line. But there are also red lines, I think, for other countries on this, for the U.S. Uh, in particular, Again, this, um, this former Japan ambassador to, to China was speaking about this and, and raised the point that right now uh, Beijing seems to be testing the U.S. militarily, but there is definitely a red line there for the U.S. as well. And Peter, I wanted to circle back about Europe. You know, the, the U.S. Has, has had a long military presence in Japan, uh, really dating to post-World War II. But, uh, you know, Japan has asked for, you know, stronger help from Europe. And we've seen, you know, even at the NATO meetings, you know, a push to have a, a greater presence by NATO within South China Sea. From your perspective, you know, is there any kind of historical precedence for this to have this kind of closer relationship between Japan and Europe, particularly on a military scale? No, I think this is um, it's definitely a, a change and a, a shift that reflects the um, 
again, the, the rise of China and the threat that Japan feels. So we had Japan's uh, defense minister speaking in Europe recently, and again, saying that, you know, that there needs to be a much stronger link, a stronger bond between the you know, Western democracies. Of course, Japan has always included itself in that, that grouping and has always, you know, it's been a member of the G7. So, yeah, having, you know, recently there's been French troops uh, in Japan itself doing um, exercises with Japan's self-defense force. And also we have the British aircraft carrier coming later this year, again, sailing right up through the South China Sea, making its point. So this sort of outreach to Europe is, um, is really quite significant, I think. As you point out, the primary military ally to Japan is the United States. It has quite a number of bases in the country and upwards of what I think used to be 50,000 troops. So it does seem to be a definite solidifying of the whole NATO alliance, um, but in a very different part of the world. There's definitely a message, um, if not the... If not the drum beats of war, it's the definitely drum beats of some kind. So turning back, the British Navy is going to sail the HMS Elizabeth, you know, aptly named after the the Queen herself, to Japan and, and through the region. And and I, I'm curious how this will be played in China. Will, will this be something that they will react to, given the you know issues about British colonialism and China and its past? They cer- she certainly referenced it in the speech today. Uh, yeah, I think the name of the vessel itself gives uh, Beijing plenty of fodder for um, having a go at the British. I think when the British uh, vessel, military vessel, that was re- recently in the Black Sea, China made a comment on that as to why would a declining power such as you know the United Kingdom uh, be sending vessels off uh, Ukraine um, through the Black Sea? And so I think Beijing is quite happy to point out the decline of the you know, the so-called British Empire. But certainly the sailing of that vessel to Japan with that name gives lots of uh, propaganda opportunities for Beijing, for sure. Let me turn to China's relationship with North Korea now. You know, North Korea has been a pariah on the the, uh, international stage. But are the two countries becoming closer now, particularly as China, you know, certainly feels a bit of pressure from the West and other governments? Um, I don't know that they're coming any closer. I mean, one view of the China-North Korea relationship, it's very much a a relationship of convenience for China. I mean, however way you slice and dice it, North Korea is a basket case economically. And it's only still functioning because of China's support and trade with China. It's by far the largest trading partner for North Korea. But the function that North Korea has for China has always been it's the buffer state with, with South Korea, which is, of course, democratic, strong ally of the United States. And also, like Japan, has U.S. bases and U.S. troops on its soil. So it's always been seen as just unacceptable that any implosion of North Korea uh, could result in, you know, it being the expansion of the South into you know, one Korea being formed again because it would put a country right on the physical border of China that is a direct ally of the United States. And that's just unacceptable to Beijing. There's no way that's they're ever going to allow that. So I think it's tolerated for that reason. 
the relationship is maintained for that reason. And the only way that could ever change, there would be a fundamental shift in the, the American presence in the South. And I think there as well, one upcoming change to that is that we have a presidential election next year in South Korea. And uh, President Moon, the current president, who has seen more of someone wanting to build relations with the North, talks, etc., appeasement, if you wish to be unkind, but his popularity is, has fallen quite dramatically. So there's quite a likelihood that a conservative could get in as the next president, which would again see a, a stronger front against North Korea and by extension China. Peter, I, w- I wanted to ask about the relationship between South Korea and, and China because, you know, in, in the U.S. certainly it's also almost become a, a badge, a test to speak about China and the threat of China. Well, South Korea is a lot closer. It has been an existential threat to the country for, you know, since the Korean War of China's expansion. So I'm curious, as the Biden administration becomes much more adversarial, are we seeing that in South Korea? And could this be a potential test in the upcoming election next year? It could well be a a key issue in the election next year. But uh, as of now, the tone that is coming out of the South Korean leadership is quite different from that that's coming out of Tokyo. Tokyo is much more clearly aligning itself with uh, the U.S. position as we've discussed, getting more vocal, uh, using commentary about Taiwan in a way that's never done before. Uh, again, like South Korea, Japan is a, relies on China to a huge extent for trade. But Japan is very much coming more in line with the U.S. position, whereas South Korea is keeping its cards you know, much closer to its chest, playing it much, much more carefully. And I think uh, South Korea has also, for one, has had the, um, you know, felt the direct anger of Beijing over the THAAD missile issue of a few years back where China retaliated economically. South Korean businesses in, in China suffered or shut down. Tourism collapsed to South Korea and so on. So very much they, they got the message that you do anything that upsets Beijing, you will be punished economically. So I think in that way, South Korea is playing it much more carefully. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Our man in Brussels, Finbar Birmingham, uh, thanks for joining us. Hello, Chad. Now, uh, the last time we spoke, the circus was in town in Brussels, and you described uh, Biden as dragging Europe along in his coalition against China. Now that Biden has left, you know, I wanted to check in and see, is there an afterglow that's still there? Has the EU maintained a strong stance towards China or have they taken a step back in the couple of weeks since we last talked? I think the EU is now content to wait and see what will happen after the China fest that was the G7, NATO and the bilateral meeting with Joe Biden. The EU went along with what the US wanted to to insert China into the center of it. But I do get a sense that there's a wee bit of China fatigue here in Brussels. We had the the EU Council meeting last week. That's the leaders of all 27 European Union countries. And China wasn't mentioned at all. Um, the sense that I have here from speaking to officials and so on is that, you know, don't forget they had the sanctions blitz in March. And then they had the Biden fest here in, in June. So I think that they're quite content to see what happens with all of those things and see whether there's any sort of movement on the Chinese side. Now, 
there's other stuff going on here that seems to be more of a priority. Like, as I mentioned, the EU Council met and China wasn't on the agenda. What was on the agenda was was Russia. There's an interesting parallel to, to draw here. You may have read about this Merkel-Macron, the Franco-German alliance, the double act. They went into this meeting with the rest of the European Union leaders and they tried to push for a reset in the relationship with Russia. Now, this was rejected by some of the other member states. A lot of the sort of Eastern European members don't want to do this. They're very suspicious of Russia. They have obviously very long history and recent history with Russia. They just don't trust Russia and they don't want to do a reset. This was egg on the face for Macron and Merkel who tried to push this through. Now, this was quite similar, I thought, and conversations with others, they share this view, to what they tried to do and what they did do with the China investment deal in December. Merkel was the chief sponsor of it at this point last year. It was Merkel and Germany as the president of the EU Council. There's a sense here, I think, from some of the member states that uh, they're a bit fed up of this Franco-German axis dictating the European foreign policy towards superpowers. Uh, they got away with it least temporarily with China, with the investment deal. Although at the time you had countries like Poland, Belgium, Lithuania, all complaining because they hadn't really been consulted and it was sort of rushed over the line. They thought they didn't complain loudly enough for it to be voted down. However, you did see then in the um, in the subsequent months, the European Parliament put it in the freezer because of, of human rights issues in China and because of the sanctions that China retaliated against the EU with in March that I mentioned earlier. So, Whereas there's not a great deal of official stuff going on in China, there's parallels to be drawn there. Don't forget Merkel's on the way out in September. She's only got three months left. She's in the United Kingdom today. She's going to meet the Queen. She's meeting Boris Johnson. This is her last trip to Britain before she exits. So there's a bit of a, a wind down going on there. People are wondering what's going to happen. Um, her party, the CDU, have recovered in the polls. So it looks as though Armin Laschet will be the next chancellor if things stay as they are with potentially the green leader Annalena Baerbock forming part of the cabinet. China policy will be interesting to see what's happening there because the Greens will pull them further along. But the CDU are quite content to, I think, maintain some level of status quo. So we'll see what happens with that one. Yeah, and I, I want to turn to uh, your latest story um, where you're talking about European Parliament considering a resolution on Hong Kong after the local newspaper Apple Daily was forced to shut down. Now, first of yes. all, could you just give us a, a little sense of what is a parliamentary resolution, you know, what, what it may mean? Mm. And have we seen any of these imposed on Hong Kong before? A bit of background to this story. My story ran on Wednesday and said that this is likely to be added to the debate agenda next week. It's been added now. So they've, these uh, European parliamentarians were successful in having this uh, debate and vote added to next week's schedule. Now, a resolution is not binding. It's essentially where Parliament debates an issue and then adopts a set of measures. These are not cast into law. The European Commission, the European Council don't really have to do anything on the back of that, but it's a sense of where Parliament is. It shows what Parliament is thinking. Don't forget the European Parliament is the only organ at the EU that is directly elected by the people, by ordinary people in the member states. So the Parliament is becoming more influential. The Parliament is the organ that has essentially killed the investment deal with China. You know, we, we don't know what's in the resolution yet. So what's happening is the individual European parliamentary parties are now all negotiating in their own groups. 
to try and come up with their own drafts. I haven't seen any of these yet. I'm hoping to get one or two of the drafts by the end of the day. And then what will happen is that they will negotiate with the other parties with a view to whittling this down into one uh, consolidated document, which will be debated on and voted next week. Now, these have happened in the past for Hong Kong. Last summer, there was a resolution on Hong Kong uh, about the national security law, which called for sanctions on senior Hong Kong officials, including the chief executive, Carrie Lam. Now, we know that this hasn't really made any move the needle significantly as yet, because the European Union hasn't sanctioned any Hong Kong officials for the national security law or for anything else. You know, these are not binding, but they are a sense of a finger on the pulse of where the parliament is. We'll see what's in this. My sense is that it will be fairly similar language to the stuff in the past. A lot's happened in the in Hong Kong in the past year. Parliament has debated and has there's a sense of an appetite to really do more. The European Union itself has been fairly quiet on Hong Kong. They issued a statement last week criticizing the close down of Apple Daily. I understand that the EU's top diplomat, Joseph Burrell, may participate in the debate next week, which would be quite interesting. He, I get the sense, wants to do more on Hong Kong, but he's sort of bound by the member states. Don't forget, we've reported before, Hungary has time and again killed efforts by the European Union, by the member states to issue conclusions and statements on Hong Kong in the past. So we'll see what happens there. Look, it's it's moving. I think there's appetite to do, to do something, to at least issue some criticism and some resolutions. Whether there's actual action to follow, I'm not so sure. I don't think so, but we'll watch this space. I think we're all familiar with the, the U.S. efforts to put sanctions on Chinese officials and Hong Kong officials over the national security law. And, you know, we, we've seen Carrie Lam, the chief executive. Uh, she can't use her credit cards. Uh, she uh, is reportedly being uh, paid in cash and has potentially bags of cash at her house. And so what would we see in terms of European sanctions if they were to happen? The U.S. is, is pretty quick to pull the trigger because it comes to the executive branch many times. But, mm. you know, with... with yeah, Europe, you yeah need, the European Union can't work in that way for sure. Sanctions... So the European Union just adopted this Magnitsky-style sanctioning regime last year uh, for human rights. This is uh, was used in March. This, these are the sanctions, on the, the sanctions mechanism under which four Chinese officials were sanctioned for what the European Union says was their role in human rights infringements in Xinjiang. China obviously denies this, but this was the sort of basis of, of what the sanctioning was. They've used it on Belarus, they've used it on Russia, they've used it on a number of other countries around the world, but they've yet to use it on Hong Kong. Would it be the same as the US? It certainly wouldn't have the same effect. You know, the reason why the US sanctions are so broad and so sweeping is because of the omnipotence of the US dollar. Like the euro was not widely used. The Hong Kong dollar is not pegged to the euro. I doubt that Carrie Lam is doing a lot of euro denominated transactions. So I mean, I just generally think that the, you know, the long arm of US sanctions because of the dollar hegemony will not be replicated by the European unions. But nonetheless, I mean, they're still important, I guess, you know, they still can can ban officials from traveling to Europe, from transacting with European businesses, can ban European banks in Hong Kong, maybe concerned if, if this was to happen. But I must add that it's not on the cards. I don't think that sanctions on Hong Kong are happening anytime soon. I may be wrong, but this is my sense from various conversations with officials. I was speaking with a fairly well-placed, had a coffee yesterday with a fairly well-placed um, official from one of the member states 
his comment on sanctions was, look, they have this new mechanism. It has to be filled with names. In the future, we're probably likely to see more Chinese names on the list. But Hong Kong, he just doesn't think it's a priority. It's sort of down the list of where they what they want to do with China. I think in the European Union, there's a sense that they don't really know what they can do. If, you know, if the purpose of all these actions is supposed to materially improve the lives of normal Hong Kongers, then they're really struggling to, to know what they can do. This is why often the conclusions that the European Union adopt are quite watery and quite mildly worded, stuff like, uh, you know, engage with civil society, you know, they wanted to offer more lifeboat uh, support for Hong Kongers wanting to move to Europe, but of course Hungary killed that. I just don't see that there's major legislative action coming, but those sanctions, as I mentioned, are there if they wanted to use them. I just don't think it's coming anytime soon. Finbar, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll talk to you in a few weeks when, when you're back from uh, your trip home to the motherland. And uh, thanks again. Hopefully my accent doesn't become even more impenetrable after a few weeks in Ireland, but we'll, we'll talk to you in a few weeks and see what, ha- see what happens. Thanks, Finbar. Cheers. That's all for the China Geopolitics podcast this week. Our coverage on China continues on scmp.com. The 100th, uh, the 100th birthday of the Chinese Communist Party raised several questions. In particular, who will be Xi's successor? And will the CCP be able to last another 100 years? Only time will tell. China has transformed dramatically within the last 100 years from the May 4th movement and the Cultural Revolution to become the world's second largest economy and very soon, the biggest economy worldwide. And all eyes are on Xi, the country's most powerful leader since Mao, as he continues to promote the Chinese dream and lead China towards becoming a global superpower. For more updates, you can follow the political economy team on Twitter at SCP Economy, and you can follow me at Chad Bray. Give us your feedback on China geopolitics and let us know what else you'd like to hear about. We'll be back next week to bring you more reports and analysis. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.